Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Bria Zolman. Bria is the Guardian Scholars Program Coordinator at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana. Welcome, Bria. I am so glad that you were able to join our podcast series. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? Oh, I'm well. Thank you very much. Before we get started, I just want to let the listeners know that your program, Guardian Scholars, won one of our awards last year. So we wanted to absolutely highlight you and your program so that our listeners can learn about it and find out all of the great things that you do. Yours is the first university program that we've interviewed for this podcast series, so I'm very interested to learn about it. So with that introduction, Bria, could you just share a little bit about yourself and how is it that you came to be connected with Foster Youth? Absolutely. Well, thank you for the introduction. As you said, my name is Bria Zolman. I am currently the program manager of the Guardian Scholars Program at Ball State University, which is in Muncie, Indiana, good Midwestern university. (laughs) So I actually took a very non-traditional path towards working with young people who experience foster care. My undergraduate degree is actually in education, and I'm a licensed teacher in our state. But as I was finishing my degree, I knew early on that I actually wasn't interested in teaching in a school setting, which is the most traditional form of what you do after you get an education degree. So like many young people, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. So I spent some time working in museum education in our town. And I also, along during that time period, went and got a cosmetology license. I was really quite unsure of what my future was. But entrepreneurship had always been appealing to me. And over the years, I dabbled in multiple different professional pursuits that often had recurring themes of adult education or personal and family health and safety. Yeah. And so then during that time, I actually started my own family as well and quickly realized that being home with my children was a priority to me. And so I spent a good period of time working on these non-traditional things that I could do while I was home raising kids. And it's so crazy to me to look back on that and see how many of the skills that I picked up during that time actually equipped me in ways that I could have never expected to be doing the work that I'm doing now. Some of those skill sets include education, public speaking, sales, fundraising, marketing, graphic design, social media marketing, web design. Yeah, and all of these skills, even the cosmetology, have been kind of important to my current role serving students who experience foster care. So with all that said, actually back in 2017, I was brought in to do a social media training for a small company in Muncie who was an older youth service provider for the Indiana Department of Child Services. And the day after I gave that training, they extended a job offer to me to come on board as their marketing and communications coordinator. And so though I wasn't really looking for a job or hadn't considered working with young people in foster care, the timing was right for me to reenter the workforce. And I became very familiar with the Department of Child Services and the older youth service contracts that our company serviced. So my time in that role, I had some really exciting things that I got the opportunity to work on. I was the project manager and author of a collaborative initiative between our company actually the Ball State Immersive Learning Program and the Child Welfare Improvement Committee of the Indiana Department of Court Services. 
And we wrote and developed a children's book that was designed to help young people in foster care and their support team have a resource that not only helped them understand the complex court system into which they had been thrust, but also address some of the emotional effects experiencing family trauma has on a child. And it provided like hands-on activities for them to actually engage with while they were like bored at their court hearings and things like that. Is that book available if anybody listening was interested in trying to find it? If you're in the state of Indiana, that book is being distributed through CASA representatives throughout the state. I do believe it was kind of a one of its kind, nothing like it had been done before. And not to toot my own horn, but it was a labor of love and a lot of really talented people contributed to it. So I think it's a great resource. Outside of state, you could reach out to the Indiana Department of Child Services or the CASA agencies to see if you could get a copy of that. And do you know the title off the top of your head? Yeah, it's called Amaya and the Courthouse Mouse. Yeah, that was one of my favorite projects that I worked on in that role. And additionally, during my time in that company, I was one of the primary contributors and eventually the interim director of the company's development and administration of Indiana's National Youth in Transition or the NIDID Youth Outcome Surveys. That was one of the contracts that we held. So I did a lot of work with NIDID. And then the company as a whole, one of their main initiatives was providing life skills programming for teens in foster care. Though my role wasn't primarily youth facing at our programs, on occasion, I did curriculum development and on-site facilitation at our camps, and I even got to develop a whole life skills training on in the field of cosmetology for young women who were exiting sex trafficking and living in a residential facility, rehabilitation facility, because many of those young people have an interest in the beauty industry and are thinking about pursuing certification. So it was just really crazy to me to see all of the different random things where over the course of my young life, I thought, I don't understand how all of these things work together to be used for the good in this world. But it absolutely was part of what introduced me to working with this group of young people. And now I'm just so honored to be a voice and an advocate for young people and love being able to do that within the realm of higher education now. Wow. And so what brought you to Ball State University? How did you get connected with that program? Yeah, absolutely. So Ball State is actually my alma mater for my undergraduate. And I had been living in the town that Ball State is housed in Muncie since I graduated. So I was one of those go to college, stay, don't leave type of people. (laughs) And at that time, I had actually been familiar with the Guardian Scholars Program at Ball State since its inception, because I was a student at the time that it was founded at the university. And one of my friends was participating in the program. And so I was aware of the Guardian Scholars Program as a student at Ball State back in 2004, which was when the program was founded. Ball State is a great school. So when the opportunity arose for the position to be open, I jumped at it right away to be able to apply to work for the program because it's just such a quality program. So like I said, the Guardian Scholars was founded at Ball State University in 2004, and I believe that it was among the first campuses in the country to have a program of this nature. So the highest concentration of Guardian Scholars programs exist out in California and other Western states. But someone in the social work department at Ball State got wind of the program 
and was really committed to bringing those services to our university. So they were able to do so initially back in 2004 through a significant grant funding opportunity and needed over the next handful of years to develop a committed donor base who would support the programmatic expenses beyond the initial grant period. Is there an organization that oversees the Guardian Scholars program that you had to work with to get it started in Indiana? I may not be the best person to answer that question because I was not around at the founding of the program. But to my knowledge, there is not a governing organization that is currently overseeing Guardian Scholars programs. Okay. I'm just wondering, because I know the name Guardian Scholars is out in California, like you were saying, and a lot of universities have the Guardian Scholars name. Yes. So that's what made me wonder, is it, did you just borrow the name because it's a great name (laughs) or is it a program that is like a network under an umbrella? If it is a network under an umbrella, it's not one that we are actively participating in. Okay. But I do think it was kind of an umbrella term an umbrella program name for some of those original university programs. And now, of course, there are programs across the country under lots of different names. But Guardian Scholars, I think, is probably the most familiar. Yes, Mm -hmm. I would say that it is. Yep. Wonderful. Okay, so that was my question. So you moved into the role of the program coordinator directly. That was your first job and is still your job? Yeah, recently transitioned to a program manager position And I'm overseeing a couple of programs that includes the Guardian Scholars. Okay. All right. I'd like to hear about the program. So what is it that the young people experience? What do you do for them? You know, when do you first meet them or when do they become aware of you? And how do you help shepherd them through the college experience? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Ideally, we would like to get in touch with students at the earliest possible time. So in their pre-admission phase to be able to help support them as they even navigate the admissions process at our university. I know in the past that was a real challenge for former program coordinators because there's a lot of regulations at the university level about what can be shared and what can't be shared and and who it can be shared with. And so it was a challenge in the past for the program to know how do we connect with these students? How do we identify them? How do we let them know about the program? It feels like we have overcome a great hurdle in that area this year because we were able to have an admissions question added to our application that enables students to self-identify as either having a history of foster care or basically having a current familial crisis, experiencing homelessness, unaccompanied homeless youth, our McKinney-Vento verified students. And using that mechanism through the admissions process enables us to automate communication with students who self-identify so that then they can be directed to communicate with our program directly if they choose to. So that was a really, really big deal. And one thing that I didn't mention just yet was that from 2004, when the program was founded through 2019, The program was functioning as a cohort-based student support program that was housed in our social work department, and then later within the social work department in a social sciences research center in our school of health. 
during this era of the program, students were engaged in like active academic coaching that was intended to monitor and support their academic progress and improve some of the very dismal educational outcomes that we often see that students exiting foster care experience at the collegiate level. But then in 2019, the Social Sciences Research Center that was housing the program was slated to be closed. And so the university had to make some decisions about what they were going to do. It was because of the committed efforts of administrators in the Division of Student Affairs that our program actually transitioned out of the School of Health and became an initiative that was supported by the Division of Student Affairs. This change brought the program under the guidance of the Vice President of Student Affairs and structurally aligned our program with other major institutional offices that are supporting marginalized student groups like our Disability Services and the Multicultural Center. And so if there are people listening who are thinking about starting programs or are currently a part of programs, I can't say enough about how important where your program is housed impacts what you can do, what exposure you have, what authority you have within the infrastructure of the university setting. Being housed within student affairs, in my opinion, is the rightful place for a program of this nature because it's receiving the attention and the support at the highest levels for the things that need to be done for the program. Yeah. We did a little little research with organizations that have programs like yours around the country, and we found that really they fall under a variety of different areas. It could be under admissions or student affairs, student life, maybe ethnic diversity or multicultural areas, Mm -hmm. maybe under academic or educational programs, also in social science or social work, like you were saying. Mm -hmm. So it could fall in all sorts of different areas. So it is absolutely something to consider as to where you fall and and it's going to contribute to maybe your visibility and the leadership support and all of that. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think it has made a very big change. I came on board as the program manager at the time of that transition. So I have only known the program with the support of the backing of student affairs behind it. But my understanding is that it's a significant difference in what we can do and who is seeing and being exposed to our program. And so it's been wonderful. And how are young people referred to you? It's strictly through the admissions process. Do you reach out in any other ways? Yeah, we do other outreach. Absolutely. So I actually collaborate with the Older Youth Services, I cannot remember his exact title, but with DCS directly in our state. And they invite me to come in and speak with case managers to make sure that anyone who is working with young people is aware that there are programs like this available and that they should be directing their current caseloads towards not just ours, but any higher ed institution that is especially those who are providing those added supports. And so we collaborate directly with DCS, we collaborate with case managers, and we also collaborate with high school guidance counselors and administrators in our state to spread awareness of the program. For those who are listening, if you're not in Indiana, if you want to go to Aging Out Institute and look under our resources menu, there is a document where we track programs that specifically support young people coming out of foster care. So it's the higher ed programs link, and you'll see by state links to all of the programs that we know of. And if you know of others, let us know and we'll add it to the list. I think that awareness is really important so that they know these programs are out there and can provide a lot of different supports. 
it's a necessity, in my opinion, as we look at the percentages of students who are exiting foster care and finding success at the college level. I have found that the network of programs within the higher ed system are very supportive of one another. You might think that there would be a competition because you want them to come to your school and not someone else, but that is not the culture that I promote, nor is it much that I have experienced as I've collaborated with other programs and also consulted with others who are considering starting their own programs. So. So what areas do you provide support in? Once the young people have been accepted, what are some of the services that you offer to the young people? We work really hard to use a holistic support model. So we want to recognize and honor that these are not just college students. These are people who have lives and interests and hobbies and careers and families and everything else. And being a student is just one part of what their needs are. We work really hard to be able to serve them and support them across the full spectrum of what their needs are. One element is obviously academic interventions. So we're trying to support them to make sure not only are they feel capable of being successful in their classes, but they're aware of any other academic supports, tutoring opportunities, and honestly, just a lot of understanding the processes that support the university, especially when you experience crises or barriers during your time as a student, you need to have someone helping you understand the appeals processes for any number of things. And so that's a big part of it. We also provide a lot of support with financial aid understanding their financial aid packages, making sure that they are making decisions that don't put any of their financial aid at risk, whether that be state or federal aid, because there are a lot of regulations that they may not understand. Hey, if you drop that class, you're going to owe money back, <laughs> you know, things like that. We provide seminars and that focus on being successful at the collegiate level, gaining life skills that will help them have successful independent living after college, and also career readiness seminars. So those are kind of the three areas that we provide program seminars in every year. And then we also work really hard to provide program events that are just opportunities for students to rub shoulders with their peers who had similar life experiences. It is not uncommon for students at the collegiate level who arrive on campus and you're looking around at the general college student and you can see immediately that their lived experience is not the same as yours. Whereas you might have arrived with nothing in your hands but a backpack and the financial aid that got you there. You know, you've got students who have just unmitigated access to financial support and are living an altogether different experience. That can be very isolating. And so to be able to provide opportunities where students who participate in the program have a place of belonging within the program, not just support, but there are students here that when I look at you and I tell this story, you don't get a terrified look on your face. You're like, oh, no, yeah, I get that. They can kind of <laughs> swap stories. It's very interesting when you get a whole room of students together. It's beautiful, honestly. So, yeah, providing that support and providing programmatic events that kind of stand in the gap of some of those things. So we do a lot of holiday, we do a lot of celebrating and we do a lot of gift giving, honestly. <laughs> we have a, always have a kickoff events. We have a annual holiday event where students receive 
presents. Whatever holiday they celebrate in December, they receive basic need like food and things that'll help them over the break, but also just gifts, things that will support them, gift cards, quarters to use at the laundromat, all sorts of things. And that is all done through in-kind giving by generous program supporters. We have an incredible network of dedicated and incredibly generous program supporters who contribute to all the things that we're able to give and provide within our program. So yeah, Christmas events, we shared a Thanksgiving meal together. We make sure that they're recognized on their birthdays. We also partner with some other community organizations that both often have grant, small grant opportunities involved with working with them, but also want to provide networking opportunities for students and want to help them think about what's next for them and dream bigger than they might have previously thought and provide them access to professionals in the community who care about helping make sure their needs are met, but also care about helping them expand their options after graduation. Excellent. Mm -hmm. How many young people are you serving these days, say in a year? I'm not sure if COVID impacted that or not, but I'm curious yeah. how many young people are at your university from a foster care background? Yeah, that has been a number that has been almost impossible to actually know how many students are here that could be participating. In the past, I can tell you that the program has been very, like I said, very cohort-based and kind of self-contained. They usually served probably between 10 to 15, maybe upward closer to 20 students at a time. That's a small number, given that we are a large state university that typically has between 18 and 20,000 undergraduate in our enrollment. So something is telling you here, we're not serving the number of students that we could be. And actually, one of the things that has changed significantly in the last couple of years, and we are actively working to change right now, is the structure and some of the elements of culture in the program. So in its new position in the Division of Student Affairs, we know that it's critical that we're going to be able to meet the needs of increasing numbers of students. We know that there are far more than 18 to 20 students on campus who have experienced foster care. And so in the past, the program had held some eligibility parameters that limited the number of students who could receive services, as well as a little bit of rigidity in what program participation was defined as. And so what I've been finding recently is that we want to serve as many students as want to be served. And what we're learning is that we are really working hard to promote self-advocacy in our students, and we're listening to them and what they're saying. And so if I have a student who experienced foster care and I sit down with him because his case manager told him this program exists and he needs to meet with me and he shows up and I completely can sense from him he wants nothing to do with this program, does not want to identify as foster care, doesn't want to sign up for weekly meetings with me, doesn't want to celebrate Christmas with me then what are we doing to still communicate to that program that if you don't need or don't desire this full spectrum of supportive services, you are still welcome here and we still want to serve you. And also any of those students who were part-time students, a lot of students who experience foster care, they have to work full-time and it's very difficult to maintain a full-time class load. And so in the past, we were only serving full-time students. We are currently changing our structure so that we can serve not only our full-time main campus undergraduate students, but also our part-time and online students. Additionally, like I said, we're trying to make it so that students have agency over saying, 
okay, maybe you're like, oh my gosh, look at all those awesome things. I want it all. I want to come to coaching meetings. I want to go to seminars. I want Christmas gifts. I want birthday. Uh, Yes, I want it. Great. Then be in our program. But if you're like, you know what? I'm doing pretty well. I'm a great student. I don't actually need to meet with you every week, you know, or every other week or whatever their schedule might be, then that's fine. We want students to be able to identify the ways in which they would prefer to engage with us. And also, if you're like, I don't want to have anything to do with your program, but if I am about to flunk out and I need to file this appeal, can I still come to you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's, it's a menu do. approach, right? Yes. You can pick and choose the services that, that meet your needs. Yes. And that is the direction that we're heading as opposed to like, if you don't commit to the whole shebang, then you're not with us. And I think that we've already seen and we're going to continue to see that we're able to serve so many more students in that way. We're also providing that onboarding support that we have not been able to provide in the past because we have the admissions mechanism. So this year we had about the same number of participants that they've had in the past. We served about 16 students in our traditional programming. But we also served an additional 10 in onboarding and admission support and three others with just miscellaneous support who qualified for services and needed some support. So we were up to about 30 students served this year and anticipate that to grow, probably leveling out closer to 50 or more annually is what we're anticipating. And maybe more given that students are going to have the autonomy to say, yeah, I just want to be able to come to you when I need something, you know? Yeah, yeah. Do young people have to have emancipated from foster care to participate or do they have to have experienced foster care? They have to have experienced foster care. We are fortunate that we don't have to be super rigid in how we define program eligibility. And we've actually reevaluated this multiple times in the last two years since I've been in here. And where we've landed right now is that primarily the program is geared towards students who experience foster care in their teen years. So those formative years where you were developing the skills that would be necessary to be successful at the collegiate level. So someone who may have experienced foster care when they were, you know, five years old, but were adopted or reunified and their family has been thriving since then, they probably don't actually need many of the support structures that we provide. But what we're also saying is that, so we're not like a hard and fast. If you didn't have an open case at 13 or up, you're out. What we're saying is that if you didn't have an open case in your teen years, but you ha- you ever had a case and you are currently experiencing chronic deficits in your family support system, then you should apply. And it's not even really an application. It's an admissions process where they you know self-identify as someone. And then we have a screening process through which we identify what their actual needs are and their current yeah. circumstances. So right, right. yeah, does that make sense? It does. We're trying to be as inclusive as possible. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, if you have the ability to serve that many young people, then that's awesome. Mm -hmm. Now, what about housing over breaks? Is that something that's available to these young people? Because I know that's something that's a big concern of young people aging out of foster care is that they'd have a place that they could, you know, rest their head. Yeah, absolutely. And have a roof over their head over breaks in summer. Absolutely. It's really hard to focus on your final exams when you know you're going to get kicked out of the residence halls and don't have a place to go in a couple of weeks. It's absolutely a concern. There are some challenges that we experience programmatically what mechanisms we can use to support, what resources we have at our disposal. 
So at this time, the way that we support break housing, one is through helping students be forward thinking about their break housing. And in the decisions that they're making for their housing, even during the academic year, like, are you choosing to live off campus in an apartment that will afford you with the ability to have somewhere over break so long as you have the means to fund your rent? We also, the university has a year-round housing residential facility. The break housing, so if students anticipate that they're going to have break housing needs, we always recommend them to choose that residence hall for their year-round housing needs. Because then when they need break housing, they wouldn't have to move all of their stuff to a different dorm room for a week or two weeks or for the summer. Now, unfortunately, that break housing is not included in their traditional housing contract and is additional expenses. And so they would have to figure out how they're going to pay for that break housing. And that's something that we help them kind of troubleshoot what resources do they have at their disposal. Our university also offers an emergency aid grant that they can apply for. We try to help them get hooked up with other social services that are available to them with the Muncie Housing Authority and Medicaid and all the other things that can help mitigate some of those living expenses. So it's not a non-issue, but we've learned how to provide support within the structure that we have. Yes. Right. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, I am just very pleased over the years to have seen the number of programs like yours grow yeah. across the country. There seems to be a real recognition that this kind of support is needed for these young people because the statistics are not good. Right. They're not good. Right. Now I'm going by memory, but I know a statistic I see a lot is only 3% of young people who age out of foster care actually get their degree. Now, I know there are some more longitudinal studies Mm -hmm. and the numbers bump up a little bit when you give them until 26 to do it, right? right? Then the numbers do bump up a little. Right. But I think 3% is what I recall. And I also think that there is a, a difference between the young men and young women as to the success rates as well, that young women seem Mm. to do a little bit better. If there's somebody listening to this and it's the first time hearing these statistics, what's your elevator speech about that? (laughs) Sure, absolutely. So the most famous research study that I'm aware of that addresses this, and because it's a hard number to nail down, is that in 2010, Casey Family Programs revealed that young people with a history of foster care enroll in college degree programs at a rate of about 7 to 13 percent. And as you said, only approximately 2 to 3 percent successfully obtain a bachelor's or other advanced degree. And that's compared to 24 percent of the general population. I actually came across this really interesting study last year It was conducted in 2013 at a Midwestern university, and it compared the graduation rates of foster care alumni with their first-generation low-income peers. Because many people would assume, oh, they probably have similar outcome. There's a lot of intersectionality between those two groups. And what that study actually found was that foster care alumni were averaging a graduation rate of about 40% compared to 74% who were low-income first-gen students who didn't experience foster care. And not only that, but that students who experienced foster care graduated at two-thirds the pace. So it took them significantly longer, and they graduated at much lower rates. It's a big problem. 
And the NIDID surveys that I used to administrate in my former role, those are actually tracking a lot of those statistics. And for the state of Indiana, in 2019, the most recent survey results revealed that only 1% of 19-year-old foster alumni in our state were enrolled in post-secondary training of any kind. Yeah, it's certainly something that can't be ignored. Those numbers are not good. And yet within our program in the last five years, we are experiencing a 71% first year retention rate and a 68% graduation rate in the last five years. We know there's still room for improvement in the services that we're providing, but we are encouraged that we know that when you provide added supports, when you provide focused, holistic, individualized support for students who experience foster care, they are more than capable of succeeding academically. It's those other barriers that people don't understand that they're facing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know we're coming to the end of our time together. I did want to give you a chance to comment on the question I like to ask our interviewees, and that is, what do you think the foster care system can do and should do better to improve foster youth outcomes? And in this case, we're talking about educationally speaking. Sure. Obviously, there's some systemic reform that I think can happen across the field of social work that would trickle down to positive youth outcomes. There's something that I might be able to shine a light on that maybe others may not have, specifically related to higher ed outcomes. So one trend that I have seen in students, I doubt that it's new, is that many, many students who come into higher ed from the foster care system, they have experienced so much trauma that they know that college is the next step, but they have no idea what they want to do there. And it feels as though we are seeing disproportionate number of students who feel as though they have been given the messaging from a very young age that they need to either be a nurse because medical field is stable or they need to go into social work because they don't know anything else. You know, it's like you've been embedded into this system. And so those are like the only two things some of my students have ever considered. And some of them have felt pigeonholed so early that then when they get to college and they realize I'm not equipped academically for this type of rigor, or I've had traumatic experiences that make being exposed to nursing extremely triggering for me, and I'm not going to thrive in this course of study. So one thing I would like to see change in is that people who are working with students as they approach college to help them broaden their understanding of career fields and degree programs that expand far beyond nursing or social work and or increase the trauma therapy and counseling services that they receive prior to that date so that they have a chance at being more successful in those areas. So this would be a request maybe of those who work with the young people, the yeah. social workers, case the managers. foster parents, mm -hmm. case managers, mm -hmm. right, psychologists, people who work with the young people to help, like you're saying, expose them to a greater variety of opportunities. Right. And when a student comes to you and says, well, I want to go to college, but I don't know what I want to study, not making, well, social work, the default answer or nursing, because I think it's not just foster care, but many, many low income students are pushed towards medical fields out of a desire for career stability. 
not necessarily taking into account any of their own interests, abilities. So that's one thing that I think is a practical thing that could start having an impact. When you arrive to college and you're paying for it exclusively with federal and state aid, you don't have a ton of time to either fail a bunch of classes that you are not in your wheelhouse. Like if you're really strong in writing and literacy and things like that, but you're in a highly mathematical degree program or scientific degree program, it's challenging. The coursework is rigorous. And they don't have a ton of wiggle room in their financial aid to be able to be failing classes or change their major four or five times before they figure out what it really is they want to study and do. You know, it's an interesting perspective because I knew a lot of young people coming out of foster care do go into the social work field. Mm -hmm. And I always assumed that it was because they wanted to give back, right? They want to help young people who are in the similar situation that they went through mm -hmm. It hasn't crossed my mind that they might be pigeonholed into that because I hadn't thought of it that way before. Yeah, and I do think some of them, absolutely, it's like a life's passion. But for someone who's 15, 16, 17 years old to be able to identify whether something is their life passion or just the only thing they know is very difficult. Yeah, I think the more things you can expose them to, the better. The other thing that I was going to share, and this is a little counterintuitive, but I think might be useful to some people as they're trying to prepare students for higher ed, the emergence of dual credit and college preparatory high school programming, where AP classes and dual credit programs, I think rightfully is on the uprise and is generally a positive thing that's happening at the high school levels. However, one thing that I have seen that I'd like to share is that when I have students come into my program who might be bringing with them 10, 20, 30, 50, literally 50 advanced credits into their program, and they have in their mind that they're halfway to a degree, it's just not accurate. And sometimes those credit hours that they bring in can actually be a real detriment to them because at the collegiate level, students are on a financial aid side of things. Students are under what is called SAP, which stands for Satisfactory Academic Performance. What that is doing is that your financial aid is calculating how many credits do you have and how close are you to graduating. If you have too many credits, but you have not graduated, you can find yourself in a position where you're in your last semester at college and now you don't have any financial aid to fund your last semester, especially for those who are in a five-year degree program because you brought 25 credits in. The numbers say you've got 140 credits, you should be graduated by now, but you haven't finished your degree program and they will terminate your funding. So it can actually work against you. So my advice to people who are considering, okay, so what do I do in this regard? Absolutely, like AP classes and advanced credits that can cover general core classes that are universal, like a Psych 100 or a History 150 or a Communications credit. Those are great. But if you're getting like really specific credits towards something, chances are you'll have a big credit bank, which might help you with your state aid if you drop a class or fail a class, you have some credits banked, like that's a good thing. But don't go overboard and try to make them very general. 
No, that's good advice. Yeah. I had never heard of that. So that's excellent to know. Yeah. Wonderful. I don't know if that actually falls into things we can do to improve youth outcomes, but maybe. Well, I think they will improve youth outcomes in general. It might not be foster care system specific, but it is absolutely going to help youth with their path that they're taking to adulthood. And so I do appreciate your perspective on that. Yeah, for sure. I know we need to close down here. So maybe before we do, could you please share contact information and can people donate to your program? If so, where? And or can people reach out to you if they want to benchmark with you in regard to your Guardian Scholars program? Yeah, absolutely. All of that information can be found on our website. Our website is BSU, which is short for Ball State University, bsu.edu slash Guardian Scholars. So if you go to our website, you will find mechanisms to process donations, mechanisms to get involved with our program. You'll find my contact and I would absolutely welcome anyone who wanted to collaborate in any way or had ideas to share. That would be great. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate that you could join us today for this podcast, and I am looking forward to following up with you in regard to this year's awards program. Yes. All of last year's awards winners are going to be serving as judges for this year's awards program, so I'm looking forward to continuing our relationship. Yes. And Thank you so much. <laughs> we are so thankful for the Aging Out Institute and all of your efforts to support young people and those of us doing the work for them, so Big plug for anyone applying for the AOI (laughs) award program. It is definitely, it has been a positive thing for us for sure. And we are big fans. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And and that's exactly what we want to do. We want to support these young people ultimately by helping the adults who work with them. Mm -hmm. And so thank you very much. For those who have listened to this podcast to the very end, thank you very much. We put out a podcast every couple of weeks or so. You can go to our website, agingoutinstitute.org, and just look for the podcast link in the menu. And that's it for today. Until next time.